Welcome to Full Body Frequency, the one-hour weekly show that celebrates everything full-bodied and fabulous. I'm Laura Rice, cultural curator, fashion designer, and your guide through the Full Body Frequency experience. This is the current through which we will explore the truths and explode the myths about the lives and loves of plus-size women. Since our lives shouldn't depend on how others see us, neither will this show. Full Body Frequency is the platform through which we will dialogue about moving through this world, fully engaged with passion and purpose. Our foundation, fashion, art, culture, beauty, health and wellness, travel and love. Each week we'll go behind the blogs with some of your favorite and soon to be favorite bloggers with The Flow. Our Global Hotness segment brings you the world as we explore the international adventures of plus-size women everywhere. We'll change frequencies and explore life's possibilities. Plus One is your takeaway for the week, and because we want to hear from you, send us some listener love on Facebook at Full Body Frequency or FullBodyFrequency at gmail.com. Joining me in the flow this week is Connie L. Johnson blogger, educator, activist, and long-term AIDS survivor. Since being diagnosed, Connie has been dedicated to eradicating negative HIV-AIDS-related stigma and helping women and girls realize their maximum potential. Connie stays for our Global Hotness segment to share her new book, Beyond Measure, a collection of autobiographical sketches that chronicles the lives of eight women living with HIV-AIDS in Kenya. We'll change frequencies with Melanie Whaley, president of Essential Elements Chicago, an incredible designer boutique which caters to fashion-forward women sizes 2 to 24. Melanie shares how she uses her business as a platform to support charitable organizations and philanthropic causes near and dear to both her heart and those of her customers. It's Full Body Frequency, visible, viable, voluptuous radio. Stay tuned. You're listening to Full Body Frequency. This is Laura Rice. And I'm speaking with Connie L. Johnson, blogger, book author, and HIV AIDS activist and advocate. This South Carolina native uses a variety of personal experiences to inform and shape her career as a supplemental educator who exposes the subtle nuances of systematic racism and classism. Connie specializes in illuminating social justice issues, ranging from mass incarceration to HIV AIDS in a practical but honest manner. Johnson's personal journey through the HIV-AIDS landscape ignites her passion to empower other women living with HIV-AIDS around the globe. Through her blog, The Truth Becomes Her, one of few focused on examining economic, racial, and gender inequality, Connie advocates on behalf of women and blacks simultaneously in the tradition of Sojourner Truth. Her first book, Beyond Measure, was recently published, and her second book, a memoir entitled Survivor's Song, will be published later this year. I am so pleased to welcome change agent and liver pudding fan, Connie L. Johnson. Your blog entitled The Truth Becomes Her does something that many other blogs don't do. 
it juxtaposes current events, the news against your life experiences in a very clear, concise manner. It's so easy to offer opinion without offering the personal. What was the impetus for you to share what you shared? So Truth Becomes Her became a blog because I would hear views from women, I'd hear views from black women, I'd hear views from Christian perspective, but I never heard all of the all of that come together in one particular space. Toni Morrison said, if there's a book you really want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And I took that uh, to mean this blogs as well. So that's kind of where the, the impetus and the, the beginning of Truth Becomes Her came from. So you've got a number of really interesting subjects on your blog, including the Cosby rape culture and your own experiences. Then you've got Ray Rice, domestic violence, and your Aunt Lizzie. And you talk about street violence, your teaching style, your teacher, and being flunked with a smile. And then also, you take on so-called experts who have the answer for black communities in America. So why don't we start with Cosby? and rape culture. Just like everyone else, I watched the whole Cosby allegations roll out and everyone and their uncle had an opinion. And so as I sat back and I watched and I listened to, to what everyone else had to say, I found it quite surprising that even those closest to me had a hard time even fathoming that Bill Cosby could have been involved in these allegations. And I had a conversation with pretty much my best friend, and he had the same questions. Why are they just coming out with this? Why is it that, that, that they didn't say anything before now? And in my own experience, having been endured sexual abuse, I couldn't help but go back to that space, mm-hmm. that kind of headspace of why didn't I say anything? Who would I would have, you know, who would I have told? And just to understand that me being who I am at the time, just a a teenager in South Carolina and didn't say anything, I can only imagine being one of those those particular women and Bill Cosby being who he is in the limelight and not saying, you know, anything. So that's kind of where that particular blog post comes from. And I I did it more so to ask questions about who we are as a community that we won't question certain people. We've kind of put some people on on a pedestal. Why is it just absolutely impossible that these these rapes occurred or that these assaults occurred? And public opinion actually protects, seems to protect uh, a potential perpetrator rather than the victim. And so how do we protect our our daughters? How do we protect our nieces and our aunts and our grandmothers? And how do do we move forward with that Mm -hmm. if we're not willing to actually admit or face the fact that it's possible that these things could occur? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the other blogs that really sparked my interest was the one where you say, your teacher flunked you with a smile and that really got you on the road to writing. Miss Sharon Albert was my, she was actually my 10th grade English teacher and I was a high school student who was very lax in, in my work 
I believe I had the, the potential, but just did not have the motivation whatsoever. And in every other class, if I showed up and looked like I was doing some work, I was able to get by. But Miss Albert saw something different in me. She would assign papers every week, and I would do them the night before and turn them in, and she would give me a D every single time. And this method of mine had worked, and I'd gotten A's up until then. And I would talk to her and ask her, why, why did you give me a D? She said, you can dig deeper than that. You can, you can do more than what you're doing. And on the last day of school, my 10th grade year, she pulls me aside and says, I'm going to do you a favor. And I'm thinking she's going to actually pass me. And she said, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to flunk you with a smile. And my heart drops because at the time you have to pay for summer school. Mm. So I knew to go home to my mother and tell her that she was going to have to go in her pocket for me to pay for a class that I could have easily passed during the school year was going to be trouble. But she flunked me. I went to summer school and I got a B in that class. She, she basically taught me to, to work to my potential. And so I appreciate her for that lesson. I didn't then, <laughs> as I see with my students now, but challenged me to do greater and challenged me to be better and to tell me that what I wrote just before midnight the night before was amazing but was not my best mm. actually gave me the somewhat of the confidence to, to become a writer and to write as I do now. That's wonderful. We all need teachers like her that advocate on our behalf and push us to be greater than we think we can be. You're listening to Full Body Frequency. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with educator, activist, and author Connie L. Johnson. One of the things that you talk about is restorative justice and forgiveness. So tell me how those two things have impacted your life and continue to impact your blog. The restorative part of, of justice, as well as forgiveness and kindness and compassion, are the kinds of things that I wasn't seeing in those other blogs about mass incarceration, about community, about all of these different social issues that were coming up. Nobody was really talking about the human compassion, human for forgiveness, those kinds of things that I believe are practical. They're not easy, but would be beneficial in rebuilding and restoring our community. I specifically chose to honor Sojourner Truth in, in this blog because she is one of the first women that I came across whose work involved racial justice, gender equality, as well as honoring her Christian faith. And then chivalry didn't die, it just relocated. It actually made me laugh and it made me smile. You talk about it in the context of Writing the, the L in Chicago, which is the equivalent of the subway. And you're from South Carolina. And so, of course, there's some uh, southern hospitality that's missing here in the big city. Share that with us, because I think it's just a wonderful kind of celebration of men and being comfortable with, with yourself and with others. So, as you mentioned, I am from South Carolina. So the only... <laughs> It's ignorant of me to say, but the only like real context of Chicago, especially black Chicago that I had was good times. So I was expecting this. <laughs> it's ignorant. I know. But we 
I was in class, so I, I'm in, I'm living on the Gold Coast. I'm in at Loyola. There's very few people who look like me, and even fewer who talk, walk, think like me. And so I was almost scared to death when I moved on the South Side because I really did not know what to expect. I'd heard all of these things. And when I got there, and I'm using the public transportation, and all of these, every day, there would be some stranger, a man, a black man, who would tell me good morning, or you look nice today, or, you know, let me on the bus first, or, you know, carry a bag for me. And I wasn't expecting it. But when I got it, I said, okay, so if I'm, if I can admit that I have been given a very wrong idea of who my brothers, my uncles, my, you know, my father is, then how much more is the rest of the world getting this wrong idea of who my brothers, my fathers, my uncles, my nephews are? And so I, I wrote that blog in particular to celebrate just the average guy, the one who's going to work every day, just trying to live, but finds it that finds it necessary to to be kind and to be courteous just within his walk and to be a gentleman. What do you hope to accomplish with your blog in the long run? In the short term, it's clear this is about balancing your life against current events and news. But what what is it that you hope to really accomplish with the blog? So I actually hope that truth becomes her not only is a blog, but would be maybe workshops in the future to take it into the community to to look at social justice issues in a very different lens across the board to, for uh, empowerment of women and girls. I'd also like to see maybe my own radio show and, and title it, you know, Truth Becomes Her. That would also be a possibility. I, I really see that the sky's the limit. Well, Connie is going to stay with us for our next segment entitled Global Hotness, and it's one you won't want to miss. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. HIV AIDS activist and advocate. So Connie, one of the things that you've been so open about is your status with HIV AIDS. And um, it's really the impetus for your book, Beyond Measure. I found your book incredibly inspirational, looking through a different lens of women living with HIV and AIDS in Kenya. And your lens is particularly interesting because you were diagnosed with HIV 
2002 and then AIDS in 04. So let's talk a bit about your journey to Beyond Measure. So the journey to Beyond Measure is twisting and turning one. So I'll start with the day that I was uh, diagnosed. I was attending a small HBCU in Columbia, South Carolina, and there was an HIV AIDS, there was HIV AIDS day, and there was a testing van uh, on the campus, and they were giving away prizes. So if you got tested, you were able to get a prize. There was a pair of cute socks on that prize table. I wanted the socks, and they said, if you get tested, then you can get the socks. I wanted the socks without being tested, and I said, no, go. So I was actually afraid of the needle more than I was afraid of the, of the results. Um, got tested, long story short, I was diagnosed with HIV. World flipped upside down because my mother had died of AIDS seven years prior. And so I watched her pretty much just diminish before my eyes. So to get this diagnosis, I knew I knew the possibilities for me were slim, or so I thought. And so I was diagnosed with, with HIV in 02. There were no symptoms. There, I wasn't sick at all. And at that moment, I pretty much was given a choice. I, I had to decide how I was going to live my life. And that pretty much brought about a, a major shift in my thinking, in my behaviors. Um, and so fast forward a little bit, um, ended up getting sick. And I was so sick that doctors were basically telling me that there's nothing else we can do for you. There are two numbers that most doctors take take really careful looks at to see, you know, where you are in HIV uh, or AIDS. And that number is the CD4 count, which tells you how many cells, you know, good cells are reproducing themselves. And the viral load, which tells you how much of the HIV is still growing in your body. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I was considered to have had AIDS. And so that's pretty much, and I was a young woman, so I'm in my mid-20s at the time. Fast forward again, I get myself together, you know, start the medications. I'm doing a lot better. I'm in college, so I graduate uh, from Columbia College in Columbia, South Carolina with a degree in family and child services. And then I start working with kids. And so I love it, but it, it was a there was a federal grant that I was working under, and it actually ended. And so I kind of was figuring, like, what's next? And I knew I wanted to study something social, but I didn't want to study social work. Um, and so I decided to study social justice. And so that's how I ended up at Loyola University. I was offered an opportunity to travel to Kenya. And so that was the first time that I went. It was a, a course that was, that counted as an elective. And what we did was we traveled there looking for social issues that affect Kenyans and Americans alike to see how Kenyans address the issues and how Americans address the same issues. And so each student was required to choose a particular social justice issue. I chose HIV, AIDS, and women. And so that's how I ended up getting introduced to Living Positive Kenya because it was one of our one of our visits that we did during that trip. The following summer, I returned to Living Positive Kenya as an intern where I was able to spend a lot more time with the women there. Um, and that's how I was able to co collect their stories and interview them and spend time with them. 
you're listening to Full Body Frequency. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with educator, activist, and author, Connie L. Johnson. So before you go too much further, let's step back for a minute and talk about Living Positive Kenya, the program, the format, and how you juxtapose that against programs here in the U.S., specifically in terms of the outcomes for people living with HIV and AIDS. So Living Positive Kenya is a... a a Kenyan uh, AIDS organization that was uh, founded by Mary Wandiri Mathoni, who is an amazing woman who has a background in social work. And her job basically was to take children from their homes. And so she kind of came to the realization that healthy children come from healthy mothers. And so if the mothers aren't healthy, then it's impossible for the children to be healthy. So she basically just started feeding women and that's kind of how the organization came about. So she's feeding women, and the women are getting stronger, and she's directing them to the clinics. And and then she uh, comes in contact with an organization called Africa Heart, which is based out of California. And they have a, a program called WEEP, Women's Economic Empowerment Program. And WEEP is a 18-month program that pretty much takes these women from death's door to entrepreneur. And they take care of their physical needs, their emotional needs, mental needs, uh, within the first six months, strengthens them so that they can actually move forward in the program. The second step of the program is that they learn skills. So they learn about seven or eight different skills, candle making, baking, cooking, sewing, and then still going to support groups and Bible studies. One of the things that makes this program so incredible is that the women who are in it are often shunned by their families, their in-laws, and absolutely threatened with death because of their status. Yes, uh, these women are not only shunned, but pretty much uh, HIV status not only affects them physically, but that's their, emo- that's their emotional life, that's their social life gone because they are absolutely isolated from the rest of their community. And because stigma is so much alive um, in Kenya. And so the third, I'll go back, the, the third phase of this wheat program is to, to build a business. Mm-hmm. So they're being taught business skills and, and how to you know, sell their goods. And, and meanwhile, any support that they're getting is being slowly decreased mm-hmm. so that when they get through this program, they are on their own and they are depending upon themselves to provide for them and their, fa- and their, their children. So they're self-sufficient. Talk a bit about the women in Beyond Measure and some of the ways in which they entered living positive Kenya. So a lot of the the women were pretty much destitute. And like I said, they come into the program and they kind of build them up. And some of them take off long before the program is even completed. And so there's this one particular woman, Monica, who the only shelter that they could find for her was a rabbit house. And she actually lived in, in this rabbit house. But not only did she live in the rabbit house, she learned how to breed the rabbits and sell the rabbits. So she created this whole job for herself to create an economy for herself to, to provide for her children. And, and of course, she, she didn't stay there long, but she 
was an entrepreneur long before she ever finished the program, simply by selling rabbits and, and breeding chickens and, and raising and selling eggs and, and that kind of thing. Naomi is, an, is another woman who, who was also doing her own thing before she finished the, the program. She was a, a hair braider. And as a matter of fact, uh, she, we became kind of close because she braided my hair while I was there, while I was in Kenya the, the, during my first trip. Um, and so she also created uh, opportunities for herself to be able to, to raise money or to, to make money, uh, to provide for herself before the program ended. And so using those creative, intuitive ways of just being who they are to, to create opportunities for themselves, they are absolutely amazing. And so to kind of juxtapose that with uh, programs here in the United States, from what I understand or from any programs that I know, none of that exists. Um, programs in the United States breed dependency because it's a business. <laughs> There's, there are so many jobs that have been created to create programs and implement programs that is there's an economy around it and so if you have no consumers which are positive women then you really have no program and there's there there's no one to to have to help one of my favorite books careless uh the careless community by john mcknight really talks about how uh pharmaceutical industry medical industry creates a creates a culture in which there's a need for them and so if there's a need then not only do you need them but now you're saying you want them in your community rather than being able to say i have the solutions mm -hmm. for my problems but you become problems so by them you mean women or children or men with hiv aids yeah. there's a need for them to exist to live to thrive off of governmental programs here in the united states in order to fund this whole machine correct full body frequency returns with connie l johnson stay tuned while cutting molding with a 12-inch dual compound miter saw while holding a newborn baby in your arms when face to face with a congregation of alligators with the ball in your hands and the entire freaking season on the line. There are a million places you'd never consider texting. So why parents. would you do it During while driving? NASCAR driver Casey Kane here, asking you to please stop the text. And together, we can stop the wrecks. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Get the message at stoptextstoprex.org. Hey, what's up? Holla at ya, boy. XOXOXO. You getting these texts? Question mark. Where are you? What are you doing? OMG, you are making me mad. You better text me back. I'm waiting outside your house. Relentless, aggressive texting is like sending an angry robot to deliver your message. When does the robot become dangerous? Let us know at that'snotcool.com. That'snotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. You're listening to Full Body Frequency. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with educator, activist, and author Connie L. Johnson. So one of the things that you've mentioned to me before is that a lot of these programs that are here in the States have you come, you sit, you discuss, you, you get a little stipend, and you go home. Right. And a lot of the women don't necessarily advocate for themselves in terms of medical care either. Right. They take the medication that's been given. There are no questions asked. They just move forward with life as it is. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about your self-advocacy 
which all of us should be applying to our lives. Um, so I've had to learn how to be an advocate for myself. That culture of need um, also pretty much uh, breeds that dependency upon a doctor. So you're basically at waiting for a doctor to tell you what you should be doing rather than being a partner in your health. Most recently, I had a doctor's appointment with a new doctor who, who just was not aware that I was aware of, you know, of who I was and, and what I want for myself and was basically trying to kind of press some medication on me. And I, I basically had to stop her in her tracks and say, no, this is not what we're going to do right now. Like, you are a new doctor. I need to know who you are. You need to know who I am. Let's get some, some things clear. Because it's taken me so long to get to that point, I am concerned uh, but I call I call other women living with HIV my blood sisters. Mm. I'm concerned about my blood sisters because many of them, some of them don't have the knowledge to advocate for themselves. Mm-hmm. Some of them don't realize that advocating for themselves isn't even an option. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with that, there there's concern there because a lot of these women never know their full potential mm-hmm. because there's there's the system of depend on me for your needs Mm -hmm. and yeah it's an issue when you were interning the eight weeks in in the summer with living positive kenya was it at that time that you learned to advocate for yourself or was it before then it's kind of been a process so before long before going to to kenya I, I learned to advocate for myself in south carolina i had two phenomenal black female doctors who without them I'm not sure if I'd be here but they gave it to me straight no chaser what I should be doing what I need to be doing and so in that aspect care is a good thing because you're telling me what I need in order to survive rather than telling me what I need to support the next big pharma Mm -hmm. company not to say that the medical industry is not a necessity. On the other hand, I have had doctors who have tried to press procedures on me that I didn't need for the sake of, you know, money rolling in. And so I've really had to do research mm-hmm. because they've wanted to, you know, let's go ahead and, and get the, the anesthesiologist in, you know, we can do this procedure today. No, we're not going to do this today. Mm-hmm. I need to be able to go and do, go home, do some research. If I need that, I'll be back to call, you know, to set up an appointment with you, but to take control over my own health and my own body. And, and so, yeah, it, it doesn't come overnight. And I'm wondering, I, I wonder so much what separates those of us who are able to do that, and those of us, unfortunately, the majority who aren't. Talk about openly is education and educating yourself about your status, but also education in terms of of, of formal education. Before they enter living positive Kenya, many of these women don't have a source of income. They're living impoverished lives. And as a result, their children don't go to school. So living positive Kenya provides school fees so the children can go to school. And so one of the things that struck me as ironic is that you're here in the States. You're you're in graduate school, you're working a part-time job, you've gotten some financial aid, but you've exhausted your student loans, and you're looking and you've been advised to look for a scholarship, 
in particular for women with HIV AIDS? And you found none. Or if there was one or two, it was for maybe a thousand dollars, and that would have covered my books. I have not, I have yet to find a scholarship, a full scholarship for women living with HIV for any sort of educational purposes outside of an LGED mm-hmm. a program or a high school equivalency. So what that told me is that I belong to a part of the population that is not expected to perform academically. Mm-hmm. And that is a problem. That is a problem. And so that's what Beyond Measure is for, which I hope to soon <laughs> uh, replicate here in the States. Um, because Living Positive Kenya does a wonderful job of sending the children to school. But I'm wondering how much more the women would benefit from literacy classes, from being able to express themselves. And I really think that that is the key to that advocacy part, is being able to go out and seek the information and understand exactly what you're reading and understand what your doctor is telling you when they're telling you and to be able to uh, understand your paperwork (laughs) instead of just signing on the dotted line. So, but also beyond the the idea of literacy and education and obtaining certain goals, the idea that there are no scholarships for women who are in undergrad or graduate school living with HIV AIDS or young adults, period, says a lot about life expectancy, that you are to sit in your corner, take your meds, but it does not include higher education. And the the irony of that is that, you know, here you are 20 years later, you're teaching, You've got your master's degree. We look at Magic Johnson living living 20 years later. And as far as we know, Magic Johnson still has his HIV status, not AIDS. But the bottom line is, why not scholarships? What's happening now is that there's an aging population mm-hmm. of, of people living with HIV. And so now what what people are looking at is the fact that we that there are HIV positive people who are living extended lives mm-hmm. the days of my mother's time where you you know where you get a, a diagnosis and you're gone within the next two years those days are over because there has been advanced technology in the in the medications um, and so for that we're thankful however that means that the programs and the offerings <laughs> have to shift as well mm-hmm. so are we preparing people to live these elongated lives and to to be the, their best selves and I'm not sure so, so sure that we're that we're doing that well mm-hmm. right now and that's right now you mean here in the, here in the, in the US. US many of the women that you profile in beyond measure women who are part of the living positive living positive Kenya program contracted HIV AIDS through their marriage through their husbands who often have to work out of town or may have contracted before meeting them. And there's a sense of, of devastation when these women find out. One of the threads, though, is that these women are, are still in love with these men. However, there's a tendency for some of the men, not all of them, to turn violent once the woman confronts the man with her status. 
In many instances, some of them abandon their families. Some of them die before their wives die. But one of the things that's so beautiful is that the majority of these women have forgiven these men and have decided that they have children, they have responsibilities, they have families, they have life, and they're going to live it. That was something that I was really hoping when readers would pick up on. My my stance is not to, to bash men. They are, <laughs> men are human. You know, they make mistakes. Unfortunately, the women in their lives also have to endure their mistakes as well. And to be honest, their stories are the stories of women living in America mm -hmm. <laughs> who Absolutely. are living with HIV. Mm -hmm. uh, women living with HIV, a lot of times are infected by men who they know, who they love, who they trust. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times being in a, in a marriage, being in a committed relationship is a risk mm -hmm. for women. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that gets lost in translation a lot of time because mm -hmm. you, we automatically assume a lot of things about women right. who have contracted HIV mm -hmm. um, that just aren't necessarily true in most cases, mm -hmm. as well as the forgiveness of the men in their lives. That's very much so translates here in the U.S. as well. I know women specifically whose husbands have infected them with HIV and they have stayed with them. They have pretty much nursed them back to health or, you know, nursed them to health un until they passed away. And so I think that really talks to the power and compassion of a woman. I have to say your book does a beautiful job of showing the compassion of, of the women who are in the program and also Mary who founded Living Positive Kenya. So now we know that this book is a fundraiser and with the proceeds again tell us what you plan to do. So the proceeds from the book will be used for uh, literacy classes for the women at Living Positive Kenya, whether it be one-on-one -on -one tutoring, whether it be, you know, group classes. It's also for women who want to continue their education. There were several women who have a high school diploma but could not afford to go to college. For more information on Connie L. Johnson's The Girl Like Me blog, The Truth Becomes Her Digital Space, or her book Beyond Measure, please visit the Full Body Frequency Facebook page. Welcome back to Full Body Frequency. I'm Laura Rice. We're continuing our conversation with social change agents. Now we move from HIV AIDS advocacy to fashion and philanthropy with Melanie Whaley of Essential Elements Chicago, one of the city's chicest boutiques. This second generation entrepreneur is a former school teacher and graphic artist who sets the bar high for herself and her business, incorporating faith, family, and fortitude into everything she does. Because of this, Melanie's business has developed an incredible customer base of stylish women who regularly travel across the country to shop, but really to fellowship with her and the rest of the Essential Elements Chicago family and to help the causes she supports. Melanie, thank you for joining us on Full Body Frequency. 
My pleasure. I'm happy to be with you. So you're a second-generation entrepreneur, and your parents had a janitorial business, a restaurant, and a, and a clothing store, but you didn't follow directly in their entrepreneurial footsteps. Instead, you taught. I did. At, at one point, I did teach. Um, initially, you know, my story is really rather unique. My um, college degree was in communications design slash marketing, and at the time that I graduated from school, I don't want to date myself, but... It was not in the computer generation, so everything was done by hand. And the year that I was to graduate, I had the misfortune of losing my entire portfolio in a flood in my basement. In that arena, your portfolio speaks for yourself more so than you as a person. So I kind of went into just really a, a pit of despair. It was very disparaging for me and could not land an interview without a portfolio. And after just just really kind of feeling defeated, my dad uh, introduced me to this tiny storefront on 87th Street and suggested that I may have a little retail opportunity there. So fast forward, after being in business for approximately nine years or so, it was tough. It was really tough. I, I, as a business owner, one thing that I want to say is startups are not easy. And so what eventually happened is I joined the ranks of the Chicago Board of Education to really just give me a steady stream of income and some much-needed benefits. So I kind of stepped into entrepreneurship. I actually had big aspirations of being a graphic designer. The, you mentioned your dad found the place for you on 87th Street in Chicago. Is, that, is this the original store that you have now, or is this another location? No, this is another location. This was just east of us. Okay. It was the original location. So in addition to working at your family's clothing store and having great personal style, what else prepared you to launch, sustain, and grow essential elements? I, I want to be as inspirational as I possibly can, but just the way I started business, I would not say it's the proper way to start business. I, I did not have a business plan. I didn't scope demographics. I didn't even really have built-up capital. That just wasn't my case. Um, the, um, the only prep that I really had was coming from a family that's already had businesses, so I had some business acumen. Um, I uh, had a little bit of capital, but I had a strong background in retail from just, you know, grassroots learning that business. So I went into essential elements with hope and a big prayer. Mm. Uh, But I would highly recommend that, you know, people who are aspiring to go into whatever type of business that you do a lot more homework than I did. But one of the things you have, and I notice this when, when I, whenever I come into the store, you have a passion for what you're doing. And I think that's really important. Yeah, I love what I'm doing. I love it. I mean, I really love it. It's not, uh, it's not about the money. It's, uh, it's about community. It's about service. It's about making women feel great about themselves. It's, in essence, a real ministry for me. And then the caveat is I do uh, get the fringe benefits of, you know, making a living at it and being able to travel and being able to employ people. Nothing is more fulfilling than that. So, uh, yeah, and people say all the time that it resonates in the business. You can just tell that uh, there is an energy there that is 
so welcoming and just, you know, kind of atypical of what boutique shopping can be. And, and one of the many things that Essential Elements does so well is activating its customer base to support Essential Elements, regular philanthropic and charitable endeavors. And please share three or four, including uh, your breast cancer awareness campaign and Denim for Denim. Yeah, that was fun. So breast cancer awareness kind of morphed into this big thing. Uh, originally, I had a customer who worked in social services, and she came to me and asked me about doing, you know, some type of breast cancer awareness day about, it's been about four years ago. And uh, I was like, let's do this. And so she had fake breasts that people could actually feel and uh, see what a lump would feel like, and she had information. And uh, I coupled that along with having some fun T-shirts designed and we had refreshments and everything, and then a portion of that day's proceeds went to a charitable organization specifically for breast cancer research. So it has, it morphed into just really being a big thing, and this past October was our biggest ever. Um, I'm happy to say we were able to give a sizable contribution to the American Cancer Society with an emphasis on breast cancer research. And Denim for Denim was, it, we, we only did it one time, but it was a great effort as well. We partnered with a women's shelter, and at that time I was selling Cookie Johnson denim jeans. And so the whole concept was to bring in one of your new or gently worn pair of jeans, and you got a, a nice discount off of a brand new pair of Cookie Johnson jeans. So, I mean, we were able to donate bags and bags of jeans to this uh, women's shelter because several customers brought in more than one pair. They just looked at it as a, a really great opportunity to clean their closet of either jeans that they weren't wearing or jeans that they never wore and just took the opportunity to be able to give back. And then we also partnered with uh, Mayfair Academy of Fine Arts. I love Mayfair. I love what they're doing. They're a hundred-year established school teaching uh, kids all types of dance, and so we give regularly to them. And last year I partnered with Commons, uh, Common Ground Foundation where we were able to contribute to their efforts and then doing other things like partnering with churches that are sending young ladies to prom, so we donate brand-new jewelry for these young ladies to have for prom and several other things that I probably can't think of off the top of my mind, but it is so very important for me to give back because I look at myself as a community business, so I'm depending on the community for support. And so if I'm depending on them, then it's imperative for me to give back to the community that's supporting me. And 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 at the end of the day, I truly just believe I am a vessel for the blessings that God affords me. So it's just the most rewarding feeling ever to give back. I'm Laura Rice. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Full Body Frequency. And we're talking spring fashion and philanthropy with boutique owner Melanie Whaley. And it's clearly a win-win situation because I've noticed over the years that I've been back and forth between Chicago and New York that every time I come there, the place is filled especially around your special events, which is absolutely wonderful to see this kind of success for entrepreneurs in our community. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It's it's really a blessing. And, you know, I get asked asked quite often from 
customers asking me to maybe a sales rep who happens to drop in and they want to know, what are you doing? And I think it's just a whole barrage of things that, that, that jive well together. It's a great mix of everything. It's uh, great customer service. It is giving back. It is offering awesome collections of clothing and shoes and accessories. So it's working, and I'm very thankful that it's working. Now, so much of your apparel that Essential Elements carries are wonderful statement pieces that can be worn every day or for a special occasion. Who is the Essential Elements customer, and what designers do you feature? Oh, so many. If I close my eyes and envision my customer, she's really, well, I'm in 35 and up, I would say, really, because, uh, and I say that I have customers of all ages, but when it comes to the customer that has the disposable income to invest in uh, certain labels that I carry, like uh, Alambika and Kadem Sasson from Israel and Transparente and Prisa and Rizona from Germany, and uh, then there's my money's jewelry line that comes from Denmark, along with a great clothing line, Completo, that I've been carrying for several years from Denmark. All of those designers kind of come with a little price tag to it, but they, they're worth it because they're investment clothing. I believe in selling clothing that does not go to the back of your closet. If you stop wearing it, it's just because you're tired of wearing it, not because it's worn, not because it's out of style, not because it was poorly made. So those are, those are really like my pay-the-bill lines. And then I also do domestic designers like Planet, Brenda Brunson Bay, Courtney Washington, who's back to his native Jamaica, but uh, Courtney, you know, has been known forever as a New York designer. And then I'm constantly, I have my eyes open all the time for what's new, what's exciting, who's out there. I, 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 I have a thrill for the hunt. And then also, too, not just the clothing lines, but we, about four years ago, introduced shoes to essential elements and created a dedicated area for that. We, we kind of coined it the shoe-teak in the boutique. <laughs> and um, with that, I introduced um, lines like Fly London, which is a Canadian brand, Fiji from Portugal, United Nude from Germany, and handmade lines like Sidewalk um, from California and Bed Stew. Labels that customers were had no familiarity of, but learned about them, only had to try them once to become a repeat buyer. So, yeah, my, I would say that my my customer is one who loves really uh, sharp clothing, but that's classic with a lot of added funk and detail. And one of my favorites that you introduced me to actually is Subo. Yes. Love yes. those shoes. They're so comfortable and so stylish. And I would almost say edgy to some extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Subo is actually a comfort brand. And I, if, uh, if you might notice, I didn't carry Subo this last season. Subo underwent some uh, internal changes. They were bought by UGG, by the UGG oh, label. Okay. So they had to real. they went through some internal changes, but now they're back with a vengeance. I'm excited about our spring-summer collection. Subo is known for 
putting that stylish shoe on your foot that you can wear all day long and not get tired, not feel worn, not with a backache. So we're excited to uh, reintroduce them back on, into essential elements. Wonderful. Wonderful. And now, while you carry designers that cater to both your Missy and Plus Size customers, um, you mentioned Rizona, Courtney Washington, you've got Comfy, Transparente, uh-huh. Space. You and I spoke about the challenges of finding mid-range to high-end apparel for your full-figure customers. You know, it's gotten better, a lot better. Um, they, uh, the, the, the market is becoming more and more conscientious of that 12 and of a woman. And, you know, really, they consider a size 12 as plus size in the fashion arena. And you're finding more and more labels. I tend to find the type of styling that I like more from European brands. But then there's my Comfy USA brand that is just wonderful. They're Missy as well as Plus. I love the fact that what I do in Missy, I can do in Plus for uh, with Comfy. And my customers just love that label because it's washable, it's breathable, it's organic. And um, each season, it's, it changes. And so we have a lot of fun with that. I would say my biggest challenge, though, with the Plus Size customer is she's changing a little bit in her demand of fashion where she doesn't want things that are necessarily looser fitting, flowier. She wants more tailored things, more she wants more fit to her garments and so that's where the challenge is because unfortunately a lot of designers still think that the plus size customer is really basically looking to cover up instead of accentuate her her figure. Right. So that's been the challenge. And then another big challenge, another big, big challenge is trying to find fashionable leg wear for plus-size customers, be it a legging, be it tights, hosiery. That is just the most difficult challenge because I carry some really, really fun brands for Missy sizes in my leg wear. But my plus-size customers are always coming down on me hard about, when are you going to get this for us? And, you know, they kind of point the finger at me when I'm not the manufacturer. I'm, I'm the middle person, uh, but I, I'm just going to feel like I've struck gold once somebody out there finally wakes up and sees that, yes, a plus-size woman will wear polka dot leggings. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But have you considered designing your own line or contracting with some of your Missy designers to create a private plus-size label for Essential Elements? You know, I, I kind of toyed with that at one time. But Essential Elements, with either we're in high season of selling or then it's market time. Just, I just don't see where I could put that on my plate, especially with some other things that we have on the forefront. I, I, I just will continue to have the thrill of the hunt. I, 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 I don't want to say no, never say no, but right now it's not on the forefront. I'm Laura Rice. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Full Body Frequency, and we're talking spring fashion and philanthropy with boutique owner Melanie Whaley. So, you know, spring is on its way, and it, with it comes fresh new fashion. And mm-hmm. in, in addition to the Pantone color of the year, which is Marsala, which mm-hmm. seems a little dark 
to me for spring, but right. Yeah. But what right. Is, what are some of the trends that we can look forward to? And of these trend influencers, what might essential elements carry? I will kind of look at the, you know the Pantone color. My customers, we love rich earthy tones all the time. I, all the time. It doesn't matter. You know that uh, Pantone is saying Marsala is the color to wear. But we love brights in the summer, so if it's pink but a bright pink, a hot pink, or, or uh, you know, orange or something like that. So that's always a win-win for me. Prints and patterns are really, really on the forefront, but it can be tricky because prints are so very personal. They are. Um, they really are. You know, you either hit it out the park or it's, it's dead. You know, it's it's. it's it amazes me how people can all love something or people can all dislike something. I'm excited just really to just continue to bring in some beautiful colors, styles. So what's next for Melanie Willie? What's what's next on your plan? I know you got essential elements, you got the sh- the shoe teak, uh-huh. but what's next for you personally? Well, for me personally, honestly, Laura, Melanie needs some Melanie time. I listened to your pilot show, and I was hearing Tarshell. Is it Tarshell? Tarshell, right. Yeah, and she was just talking about spying and spa, you know, going to the spa. But I just really, I'm the last person on the list to be taken care of. So just really kind of getting more into realizing, recognizing myself in this in, in life, you know, getting myself to the gym, doing some adventurous traveling, but just really just doing something outside the box. Uh, I'm blessed to be at a point in business now that I have a great staff in place who are, they're more than capable to handle most any situation outside of my presence. So I would say for Melanie, it's just time for me. Wonderful. And I highly endorse you tapping into your full body frequency. For more information about Melanie Whaley or Essential Elements Chicago, please visit the Full Body Frequency Facebook page. In the spirit of this week's show, our plus one comes from James Redfield, author of The Celestine Prophecy. We're all in this place to do something of great magnitude and courage. It does not have to be anything of wide scope or even something that a lot of people know about. It's about touching the lives of people that cross our paths. Until next time, be sure to tap into your own full body frequency and do something great for someone else.